This is a reminder, you're listening to the delayed broadcast here on Faith FM. If you would like to listen to the live show live and participate in the quiz and the prizes and all the other fun things that happen on Faith FM Breakfast Show, then simply download the Faith FM app available on Apple or Android platforms. Welcome back, everybody. It is Encounter with God time right now where we are going to get into our 20 million movement, 20 million people around the world studying the same passage of the Bible at the same time. Before we do, I do need to remind you to grab our new Faith FM app, Faith FM Australia app, where you can listen to Faith FM with a perfectly clear signal wherever you are, whenever you want to. And you will always get the live show, not the delayed broadcast. So uh, jump on your app store, search for Faith FM Australia, hit download. It will take about 30 milliseconds and you will be up and running. No ads, no hassle, no nothing. Just press bada play. Bing, bada boom, you're in. That's like, it. You're living your best technological advanced life. Um, okay. All that. <laughs> we have another clue for the quiz. What number am I? Are you ready? Okay, what number are we dealing with? So, um, okay, so we gave a few clues already. At the Lord's command, Isaiah walked around stripped and barefoot this many years. Um, The number of days Israel went without water after crossing the Red Sea. And the next clue is David had this many options of what type of punishment he would receive because he took a census. So... You, you'll find that right at the uh, the end of the book of Kings. Um, there's a little there's a little clue for you. You'll find out uh, what, what that number is. If you know the number, give us a call 1-800-324-843. Or you can give us a text to 0491-064-669 and you will win a prize for free. Indeed you will. Okay. Uh, let me see. What are we getting into today? We are into our Bible study in the book of Nehemiah. And we are going to be talking about some apostasy this morning. Ooh. Apostasy. Apostasy in the ranks. Mm-hmm. Yes. God's church was in apostasy. Do you think it's unusual for God's church to be in apostasy? Um, like, no. Yeah, <laughs> like, like not at all. You know, if we say that it's unusual for uh, for uh, God's church to be in apostasy, I think we're really hang- uh, um I think we're really Having ourselves on. Yeah. Particularly when you uh, look at the history of God's church and you realize how rarely God's church was in apostasy. Here's the interesting thing. When God's church is in apostasy, does God's church ever claim to be in apostasy? N- never. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're like always so self-righteous the, about it. Like, you read the history of God's people and it's like they're forever falling into apostasy and they're in apostasy and God comes like, you're in apostasy. It's like, no, no, we're not. <laughs> you know, all of the all of the prophets come along and like, yes, you're in a prophet in apostasy, in apostasy. You know, and this is terrible, and you shouldn't be, you know, and this and that. Now they're like, no, no, we're fine, we're good. You know, yeah, we're, we're, we're good. Let's and, just and kill the prophet and yeah. move on. <laughs> like for saying that, we're going to kill you, but we're okay. <laughs> like, and my question is, we can read this mm. from one end of the Bible to the other. Mm. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to be super controversial here. I'm probably going to get sacked. My boss is going to walk in here in a minute and be like, yeah, you're out of here. No, um, <laughs> he won't. Whoa. <laughs> but but we can, we can uh, read the 
Bible from one end to another. We can, you know, cover a 1400 year span of history over which the Bible was written. We can see how that God's church was in apostasy a whole lot more than it was out of apostasy Mm -hmm. throughout that entire period. And yet we can say, oh no, we're immune from that. And we're not in apostasy. Mm. Those ones back there, they were the ones. <laughs> you know, it's just exactly the same in, in New Testament times when, you know, Stephen stands up and Stephen, you know, he preaches his sermon and in his sermon he points out the fact that, you know, amongst other things, God has blessed the nation, but the nation has gone into apostasy on occasions. Um, and so he's pointed out the fact that in the past we've been in apostasy and we're back there again now. It's like, ooh, stone this guy to death. Mm. Because not us. Yeah. You know, the, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the various different religious groups in the time of Stephen were very, very happy to accept the fact that the nation was in apostasy during the time of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, you know, um, Haggai, whoever else you want to yeah. mention. Like, yes, 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 there was terrible apostasy back then, but not in our era. Mm. And, of course, in Isaiah's era, is Isaiah's era, it's like, we're not in apostasy. Yeah. In Jeremiah's era, it's like, no, no. We need to beat this guy up. Why is he saying that we're in apostasy? <laughs> and so if we were to come along and say, the church is in apostasy, would we expect to have any different response? Um, yeah. We sh- like, it's just been th- the way it's been. Like, the way it's been over all time, all generations as we've seen in the Bible. Yeah, it's and like- so I don't care what your religious background is this morning. Mm. I don't care which church you come from. If you're going to sit there and claim that, no, we're not in apostasy, then you are placing yourself in exactly the same shoes as you know, pretty much everybody But else. this is the thing. Like, can, can you and, be confident? Now, now, there's people that, the people that um, sorry, I, I, I butted in. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's fine. I'm terrible at that. Yeah. You need to rebuke me. Yeah, that's the apostasy okay. Yeah, of yeah, in. Amen. Um, I was just going to say, like, does that mean that if you claim that you're not in apostasy, then you always are in apostasy. <laughs> oh, there you go. Like, uh-huh. very good point. You know, or is it like, obviously there's like a, you know, not an extreme, but, you know, an underlying principle here of self-awareness that we need to have. Okay, so here's the other thing that we need to think about. People play with the semantics of a being an apostasy. Oh, there's apostasy in the church rather than being the church being an apostasy. Okay, so where do you, where's the cutoff line? Mm. When is church going from being an apostasy to having apostasy in it? You know, is it forty percent? Is it fifty percent? Is it sixty percent? Is it ninety percent? You know, is it ten percent? Where where do you draw that line? Yeah, you know, why even have that discussion? It's a pointless discussion to have mm-hmm. because you know the Bible's not giving you a a line in which you can draw a line in the sand right here. The Bible is simply saying you need. To stop and take a look at yourself Mm. and your connection with God and you need to get that sorted out uh, because, you know, we can have all these discussions about the church being an apostasy, but the real issue is this. Are you? Yes. Then this in apostasy. So important. Like. People just like to shun personal responsibility so much, uh-huh. and they like to point fingers at everyone else and That's say, right. like, "Oh, everyone else is doing the wrong thing," and and they like to point at corporate en- entities or yeah. Or, so I can sit here the say and say, sit here this morning and say, "Christianity is an apostasy." Mm. What does except it for me? Like what? Does except it, for me? Like you? Just you know, when, when I make faithful. that statement, it's like, except for me. Sorry, I'm butting in. <laughs> like it's it's. <laughs> It's okay. I, I, it takes my mind to the time of Elijah. 
uh-huh. where he's like, oh yeah, I'm the only one. Well, even the, oh no, Isaiah is probably a better example where he's, he's looking around and he's pointing at everyone else in the opening chapters at Isaiah and he's like, woe is Israel. Woe are these people. Woe are these people. Woe are these people. And then he gets transported in chapter six. He gets transported up to heaven uh-huh. and he sees heaven uh-huh. and he sees and how he sees perfect God. and he says, Woe is me. That's right. And, you know, he, the hot coal touches his lips and it's a representation of, you know, the purification that Isaiah himself needed because he realized how low and unholy he was compared to God. And, I, you know, Isaiah in that moment just became fully aware of the fact that, oh, wow, like I am a fallen human being also and I need to take personal responsibility for, for my own journey and my own personal connection with God. And we just need to be in the same place. Like if we are not then we are kidding ourselves thinking that like, oh, and, you know, Jesus has the classic counsel. It's like before you point out the speck in someone else's eye, pull out the log of your own eye. Go and buy some myself. Oh, man, like open your eyes, you know. This is, and especially like go and buy some myself in reference to like Revelation chapter 3 and the state of the church, the claimed state of the church prophetically that God says what the church will be like at the end of time. Like, He's like, everyone is blind and they just like think they're, they themselves are okay. And they're pointing out everyone else's problems. And it's like, no, we need to just open our eyes and look at ourselves, look into the mirror. You know, as, as the Bible uh, says, you know, the, the perfect law of liberty in the book of James, it's like, it says the perfect law of liberty is like a mirror that we need to look into. That's what we need to be doing. Oh. And you know, you and I are vulnerable to this. Oh, Fully, it's particularly vulnerable to this because of our job. Yeah, I know. We we tell people stuff all the time. Uh-huh. Like, like we we're representatives, and therefore, like, how much worse off are we, and how much more susceptible, and how much more intentional effort would Satan be putting in to lead us astray? Well, one of the purposes of media is to call out things that are wrong. Mm. So we do that for a living. You know, we get on the radio here and we call things out that are wrong. Uh, when we call things out that are wrong, there's always that you know subconscious psychological implication that comes back on yourself that you are right, they are wrong, therefore you are immune. Mm. That's super dangerous, right there. Oh, yeah, super dangerous place to be in. So we need to be uh, we need to be self aware. We need to we have do. that eye self. We need to um, anoint our eyes. The Bible says so that we understand exactly who we are and where we are. We need to point the finger at ourselves. We need to have a close personal look at ourselves because it does not take much to fall into apostasy and to drift away from God. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. All right, so oh. let's go back to the time of Nehemiah. Oh. Nehemiah brings... I wanted to say some more stuff. Okay, say some more stuff. Okay, just quickly. Like, we were looking in the break. We were looking at... We didn't get to really talk about this in the news segment, but some of the really harrowing things that people are writing to the farmers. Oh. It, it's, just, it's awful. It is just it dreadful. It is just horrifically awful. And that... Vegans. 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 Why is it that vegans <laughs> are so mean and uh, terrible? They need to be imprisoned. They, they, Some of the things these vegans are doing to farmers, mm. they literally need to be imprisoned. And so this is why I am not going to call myself a vegan ever again. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to promote veganism. I'm going to promote plant-based eating. Mm. 
Because veganism carries too much politics with it. It is just so heavy. But that is a perfect example of a bunch of people who are like, you know, judgmental. Ve- veganism, but veganism in and of itself is a righteous cause. Sure. Like it's like oh yeah, plant based eating is yeah, plant based. Okay, let's let's just let's strip away all the negative connotations of veganism and get back to what the word really means, which is someone who doesn't consume or use animal products. Uh-huh. Like that is a righteous cause. That is like oh look, I care about because animals. It's good for your health. It's good for your health. It's good for animals. It's good. It's good for everyone. Like it is just a good thing. Yet people have become judgmental, so unaware, judgmental, and just. Terrible and so self-righteous to the point where they're calling out people who don't live according to their lifestyle, um, which is v- like a very non-mandatory thing, even from a spiritual perspective. From a spiritual perspective, from a moral perspective, like we live in a world that has different people with different needs. It's a very non-mandatory thing. And they're calling those people out and saying those who aren't you know, doing this, those who aren't vegan, well, they should kill themselves. Like that is the if most... You got, if you've got a cause to fight for... Go go fight for it in the in in parliament, you know. Start a political movement, you know. Um, don't be going around attacking and judging individuals. Individuals, and I think that's like we, oh, we just need to just take personal response. Like that's the thing. Like you're a vegan, be stoked. You're doing such a good thing for the world. You've been doing such a good thing for your body. Be stoked and like, yeah, promote it where you can. Hey, this changed my life. This is a good thing. I I do. Like, I'm a vegan, and I was at, I was at dinner last night with someone, and people were asking me about it. And I'm like, yeah, I had some really serious health problems, which veganism really helped me to overcome. Like, I'm I'm really happy with my choice to be a vegan, but to just become militant and terrible and judgmental and hurtful, like, you know. And it's because, like, you're just in a terrible place and people call you out for it and then you're like, oh, well, I'm just going to tell a bunch of people that they should kill themselves. Like, oh, it's just the worst thing ever. And, yeah, we need to take personal responsibility. But anyway, maybe we should get to the Bible study Yeah, we now. probably I'm should. Like, we probably I'm, should. Oh, just... Nehemiah comes <laughs> to the city of Jerusalem. Mm. He brings reform. He brings revival. The people are super excited. They're worshipping God. He's got the choir up and running. He's got the temple up and running. He's got the Levites up and running. He's got the priests up and running. It's all happening. Everybody has turned back to God. There is a national corporate revival Mm. and reformation taking place in the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is like, okay, this is all good. This is great. Um, I have responsibilities back in Persia. heads back to Persia. How long do you think it takes them? before they start to fall off the wagon and break their covenant with God? Oh, probably not too long. I read... Yeah, don't be reading ahead. I was going to say, take a guess. What's, okay. your, what's your gut feeling? How long do you think okay. it would take I, you to fall off the wagon, for instance, uh, let's, or me? Let's, I'm going to say that he was gone. I've read this part of the Bible before. I'm just going to take a stab. It was around 10 years. We don't actually know. We don't actually know. No, we don't actually know. Oh, okay. So there you go. I thought, um, I thought it gave us some idea. Hmm. All right. It does sort of hint at a you know, relatively short space of time. It may have been around the 10-year mark, but um, it's unspecific how long he spends in Persia. But while he's in Persia, he finds out, he hears rumors about what's happening in Jerusalem, and so he decides to go back. Before we go to Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem and the circumstances that he finds when he gets there, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 6, and Lawson, I wonder if you could read for us verse 1. Um, chapter th- 6. Chapter 6, Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 1. Because we need to remind ourselves 
who the enemies of Israel were, who it was that was trying to stop the wall from being built, who it was who was raising armies to threaten the wall while it was being built, um, who it was that was doing a letter-writing campaign to the Persians to stop this work from happening. We need to figure out who were the worst enemies of Judah. Okay, here we go. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me. So, yeah, anyway, keep, we, can, keep, we can stop there. Okay. They're basically planning an assassination attempt, and they're like, if we can get him out of Jerusalem and we can get him separated from Jewish people, we can assassinate this guy. Mm. So you got here a, a number of people who are mentioned, Sam Ballot and Tobiah and Geshem. Mm. And they are just completely bent out of shape by the fact that this wall is being rebuilt. They are upset, they are angry, and they are going to do all that they can to stop it. And when military force fails them, and they're unable to stop it through military power because Nehemiah has armed the builders, then they're like, we just need to cut the head off the snake. Let's cut, let's cut Nehemiah off mm-hmm. and... You know, the whole thing will come to a screaming standstill because this guy has just inspired this little country and uh, we need to get rid of him. Okay, so let's go back to uh, the book of Nehemiah now. Nehemiah chapter 13 and let's start hey, reading I found out how long one. it was. How long was so, it? So, Nehemiah went to Jerusalem in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign and it says here in, the, in chapter 13 and verse... Oh, Verse 6, it says, I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to Artaxerxes um, in the 32nd... Oh, no, I'm... Okay, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to work this out. I'm going to find out the exact years. Okay, where are we going to read? Yeah, you work it out during the uh, next song break, and then we'll we'll, we'll get it sorted. All right. Okay, uh, let's read... uh, Let's start in verse 1. Nehemiah 13, verse 1. Let's start there, and let's see how we go. On that same day, as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said, No Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. For they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, though our God turned the curse into a blessing. When this passage of the law was read, all those of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. Okay, so this is pretty full on right here. Yeah. Now, what is interesting, um, particularly if you read it in a more word-for-word translation, the the issue here was not actually race. It was faith. Mm. Because what they're excluding from the assembly and excluding from the city of, from the temple worship was uh, idolaters. So people of a different faith, it's like, no, this is, this is our place of worship. You despise this kind of worship, so you can't be in here anymore. And that's kind of reasonable. If you've got somebody in your church who, you know, if you let's say you're going to a Seventh-day Adventist church, this is Seventh-day Adventist station, so, you know, we'll use that as an example. Let's say that you're going to that kind of a church and you have uh, some, let's say, some Satanists who turn up who despise Christianity um, and are going to actively work against Christianity, like, you know, Sam Ballot and Tobiah and Geshem, um, actively working against Christianity. If you've got that kind of a thing happening, 
then why would you have them in your church? Why would you mm. have people in your congregation actively working against your congregation? Mm. Okay, keep reading. Okay, it goes on to say, um, before this happened, Eliashib, the priest, who had a, been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also the relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. The room had previously been used for the storage of grain offerings, the frankincense, the various articles of the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil, uh, which had been prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. Okay, stop for a moment right here and try and wrap your head around this one. Mm -hmm. Who is it that is living in the temple. Eliashib. Who is the high priest and... The relative of Tobiah. Tobiah. Uh-huh. Okay. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about that in more detail in just a moment. But before we do, we have the city harmonic with a city on a hill.
You're listening to the City Harmonic, a city on a hill here on Faith FM. Lawson, give us another clue for our quiz. Okay. What number am I? The number of times Paul was shipwrecked. If you know what that number is, give us a call, 1-800-324-843. That is 1-800-FAITH-FM, or you can text us on 0491-064-669. Do you know where to find the passage that will give you the answer to that? Yes. Where? The book of Acts. Nope. It's not? No. No, you're right. <laughs> ah, how did I get that so wrong? You'll find it in Second Corinthians. Where? Near the end. Chapter 10. Ah. Second Corinthians chapter 10. I, I love, this like one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I've like preached on it a bunch, so I'm like, I know what's up. I love the story of... of uh, Paul's shipwreck. I have the most amazing sermon on that. That yeah. will absolutely bore you to tears unless uh, you know something about sailing. I know. We, we actually, I know, I know, that's a bit rough. But when, when we went over the book of Acts, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We and spent, I just completely we spent geeked two out. two days talking about sailing. It was Three the days it was talking the about sailing. Come on, was, guys. It was just it awesome. Was, it was awesome. It was amazing. Oh, I loved it. That's my, because you know about sailing. My, my parents loved it too. My parents are listening and my parents are like sailors. They've like won a bunch of competitions and they're like, yeah, this is where it's at. This uh-huh. is what's up. Uh-huh. So yeah, they loved it as well. Let's get back into it. Let's let's do that. All right. Sweet. But we are in Nehemiah. We are in Nehemiah. Oh yeah. I looked in the break and I try, I was trying desperately to find the number of years which Nehemiah was away for and it doesn't even tell you. How lame is that? It doesn't. It's just like, oh, I spent 12 years in Jerusalem, then I went back to Persia and then later I came back to Jerusalem. It's like, oh, that's silly. One would think it was not that many years. Mm. Artaxerxes, um, it mentions here, he leaves in the 32nd. 20, 20th year and gets back in the... The Persia in the 32nd year of his reign, so yeah. he's gone for 12 years. Yeah. 32-year um, reign is a long reign for a Persian king, very, yeah. very long reign for a Persian king. Nehemiah continues to be his cupbearer, so one would think that it was maybe a couple of years. Mm. So a couple of years after Tobiah tries to assassinate Nehemiah, mm. and there's been a great revival in the temple in Jerusalem and, and amongst the Jewish people, the high priest, let me read this to you, what the high priest does. Uh, Eliashib the priest, this is, this is Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of God was allied to Tobiah. Mm. I mean, this is corruption and apostasy at the highest level. Right at the top. And he had prepared for him, as in he, Elishib the high priest, had prepared for him, Tobiah the enemy of God, a great chamber, in other words, a very large room, where before time they had taken the meat offerings and the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of corn and new wine and oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. So here's the situation that you've got. Not only has Tobiah been allowed back into the country, mm. he has been allowed back into the city. And it's not just to sort of pass through the city, greet a few people and continue on his way. He has been allowed to stay in the city and not just in a, a hotel or a rented house. No. He hasn't even been asked to buy himself a house. Mm. He's been gifted a house. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not any ordinary it's house. Just- this is one of the rooms of the temple. Mm. And he is now living in one of the rooms of the temple that had been dedicated and consecrated for holy things only. Mm. So you've got a Gentile enemy, apostate, idolatrous uh, individual who is now living in the temple. A couple of years after Nehemiah was there. Yeah, wow. It's like, what was Eliashib thinking? Mm. You know, seriously? What's going on here? You find out what's going on because, of course, he's um, allied to Tobiah through marriage. Mm. So they have intermarried. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, we're relatives now, so let's... um. Uh, help each other out. Help each other out. Okay, so there's a, there's a couple of things here. We need to stop and think, okay, first of all, what on earth is happening here? The second is, what can we learn from it? Mm. Do we do the same thing? And what I find within Christianity is that we do. And here's the problem that I see. We have a religion, a religion, a religion that focuses on and glorifies, and rightly so, forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, and conversion. Mm. And we love to hear those stories, those testimonies of you know, reconciliation, conversion, people's lives being um, turn, you know, turned around, uh, you know, the bread and butter of Christianity, what it's all about. Mm. Because of that, we always like to see it happen. And sometimes we go too far in an effort to see it happen. Mm. Because like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if this person gave their life to God? So let's just dump a whole bunch of stuff on them. You know, uh, let's give them heaps and heaps of heaps of things. And when they turn to God, will we say, wow, you know, Tobiah became a servant of God, right? Mm. And so we give them, you know, we might give them food and clothing and housing. We just, you know, we just give, 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 give. And we are just giving to the enemies of God, and the enemies of God are just smiling and sitting and taking, 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 and completely using Christians Mm. who are being injudicious in the way they are sharing the blessings that God has given to them because the Bible says, don't take your pearls and throw them before pigs. Mm. It's a really, really, really important lesson. And that's such a, like, and this isn't a call, like, not to be compassionate. Not at all. But it's just like... It, this is a call not to support the enemies of God. Mm, fully. Yeah, it's it's ultimately, like, we have a, you know, a duty to, to uplift um, wholesome wholesomeness in general. And, and I feel like, when, yeah, when we're doing the work of actively supporting, like, things that we... Hate and it's it's not it's it like it, it becomes so much more about people. It's like, be, well, because people are just people are the people who do things. I don't know if that necessarily that that is a grammatically incorrect sentence. We, we, we take pedophiles who've served their time in jail and say we can now let them back into church because they've done their time. Yeah, that's yeah, a perfect it's example. Just ridiculousness. Yeah, we need to you know put civil measures in place as they were doing here in Israel. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, we need a civil measure it's for never this gonna because again. we know that this is wrong. Okay, we're going to continue through the story of Nehemiah. These last two chapters, we find that Nehemiah is quite the confrontationist. He brings about a reformation in a way that I think would be unpopular today. Zion Bay. The king of love, my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. 
Hi guys, it's Baron here from Drew Wooden Toys, and I'm a local member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Warrigal. We just want to invite you and your family to worship Jesus Christ with us on Saturdays. We have a kids program and an adult Bible study starting at 10am, then the divine service at 11.30. For more information, Google Seventh-day Adventist Church in Warrigal. Is forgiveness, or the lack of forgiveness, eating away at you? A relationship breakdown maybe, long-term hurt, unresolved conflict. You know, it can be dealt with. If you want to break the cycle and start living a more forgiving life, Forgive to Live is a program designed to help us all improve our lives and be more forgiving. Don't let it eat away at you anymore. If you're keen to discover the power of forgiveness, why don't you take that first step and head to forgivetolive.org.au. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio.
Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8, or 88. And it is question of the day time. Before we come to question of the day, we do have another clue for our quiz, uh, which is what number quiz am I? Uh, The clue is David had this many options of what type of punishment he would receive because he took a census. Have we already done that one? No? I don't Anyway. Uh, the chapter in both Matthew and Luke that records the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Which chapter is that? If you know the number, give us a call, 1-800-324-843. A question has come through from a listener, and I think this is an exceptionally important question for us to consider. Is baptism required before a person can receive communion? And the question was particularly in relationship to children. Should children participate in communion when they have been un, when they are not yet baptized this is a question in which church tradition amongst many 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 denominations states that a person should not uh, participate in communion until after they are baptized however my question is this can you find that anywhere in the bible And as Christians, are we going to be people of the Bible or people of tradition? What is it that is going to dictate how we live our lives? So I'm going to make a controversial statement right here that you do not need to be baptized to participate in communion. We should practice open communion. And if you would like to disagree with me, then you are free and welcome to call me up with your Bible verse. Don't call me up with this argument, that argument, or the other argument. Call me up with your Bible verse for it. Now, let's look at the principles behind why and when a person participates in communion. Clearly, a person is going to participate in communion when they are a believer in Jesus Christ and his salvation and his death on Calvary, and they are going to have an understanding of that. If you are a parent then you can know and understand when your child is ready to participate in communion. What we don't want to have, of course, is kids who are just sort of running amok in the church and, uh, oh, here's some free food, let's grab some of that, you know, kind of an attitude. Children need to understand, and parents are the very best people to help children understand that this is a serious occasion and this is a commemoration of a serious event. And so, yes, this is not just a playtime, and it's not just a food time. It is something something where we remember the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we go away rejoicing for the salvation that he has made available to us. 
Now, others will then argue that isn't that the same prerequisite for baptism? And if they have fulfilled the prerequisites for communion, then shouldn't they be baptized? You know, that's not my decision to make. And this is the key point right here. It is the decision of the individual and with children, it's the decision of the child along with the parents as to when these events take place. The Bible does not specify which whether one should come before the other. The Bible says nothing about that. But I believe that if there is a young child at church and that child believes in Jesus Christ and that child sees the adults participating in communion and wants to be a part of that process, to exclude those children is in effect to say, well, you are a lesser Christian than what the adults are. Now, what kind of a travesty is that? When would you ever tell a child, well, look, you know, you're really only half a Christian and so you can only participate in half of what goes on at church. That's the worst possible message that we can be giving to our children. We need to be encouraging our children to give their lives to Jesus Christ. We need to be encouraging them to understand what is going on in church. We need to be encouraging them to be participants in church, to be engaged uh, with what the adults are doing. This is what children naturally do. They learn from the parents that, that are around them, from the adults that are around them, and they like to mimic those things. And if you can model Christianity to, to, your, to your children, the greatest compliment that you can ever receive is your children mimicking your Christianity in their daily lives. These are my thoughts on whether baptism is required before a person can receive communion or not. Uh, feel free to send your question through to 1-800-324-843 or text them to 0491-064-669. Don't wash my feet, wash me all
Welcome back, guys. That was Alian Layton with Love Takes Time. You're listening to Faith FM. We've come to the end of our show. It is time to sign off. But before we sign off, we always sign off with a gift for you. And the reason that we sign off with a gift for you is because the Bible says it is more blessed to give than receive. And we want to receive a blessing this morning by blessing you with a blessing. Our gift this morning is Michael Asks Why. Interesting uh, story here. Uh, written by Sally Pearson Dillon. She's a retired nurse, a full-time freelance writer. She lives in Timberville, Virginia, and she writes children's books. She keeps company with two parrots, 14 parakeets, and a 48-inch iguana called Puff. However, she wrote this book as a result of her seven-year-old son, Michael, walking into her kitchen one day, pulling up a stool and coming out with a whole bunch of questions. Why this? Why that? Why is there evil in the world? You know, the really big question, why am I here? The big questions of life. And so this book is an adaptation of an earlier book called The Great Controversy. Of course, that's a classic that has been around for a very, very long time. You can get this book by calling 1-800-324-843. Great Christmas present right here. Give us a call right now, one 800 324-843, be the first caller through, and you can get your copy of Michael Asks Why. Don't forget to talk faith, live faith, and act faith.
Thousand, thousand 